This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Uh, I was going to say that I hope you had a wonderful Christmas, but that feels odd because doesn't that just seem like forever ago? Even, even I hope you had a good New Year seems like I was a couple months back. Um, but either way, I did. I do hope you had a good Christmas and a good New Year's. It's awesome to be back. Got a lot to do today. Going to talk about toxic masculinity in the next hour. Um, coming up after that, we'll talk about where populism comes from. What, why, why does it happen? What, what needs to happen in order for populism to erupt? We'll do that. Also, uh, Don Lemon, I'm sure you know what I'm referring to, saying that what happened in Chicago, that kidnapping and torture of the 18-year-old, uh, he says it, it wasn't evil. And, and my, my angle on this is why would you even feel the need to question that? Why even challenge that claim? that it was evil. We made a Facebook video about this. It's on our Facebook page now. You can check it out, but we'll talk about that coming up a little later as well. Uh, but first, I want to start here. Uh, I just want to let everyone know the, the theme of the show this year. The theme last year, and I apologize because I, I did not say it out loud enough. Uh, it was, I thought about it a lot, but we didn't, we didn't say it out loud enough, and I should have. Uh, it's a quote from Jonathan Edwards, who was an early 18th century theologian he was the guy behind the great awakening sinners in the hands of an angry god was his most famous sermon uh he said resolution one i will live for god resolution two if no one else does i still will so that was the theme of last year when no one else does i still will when no one else does what Whatever. When no one else does the right thing, I still will. When no one else does blank, I still will. So that was last year's theme. This year's theme, uh, whatever is true. So that's going to be our theme for the show this year. It's going to be how I approach uh, the show. Uh, we're making a few changes. I'm making a few changes that I think you will notice. We'll take a little time to find the right gear, get some momentum, fix bad habits. Uh, but I think you'll notice a difference. You'll feel a difference. Uh, when you're done listening. So where does it come from? So whatever is true, uh, it's Philippians 4.8. So he's writing uh, to the church in Philippi in Greece. And he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And the God of peace will be with you. So that's what I want to focus on on this show. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Why? Well, because the God of peace will be with you. You'll feel better. Uh, and, and the opposite of these things are, you know, what is false, dishonorable, wrong, ugly, bad. Like I, 
I don't want to spend my Saturdays <laughs> thinking on those things. But now, obviously, we still got to point those out, right? So we will talk about what happened in Chicago. So we will still point out evil because we need to know about it. I'm not going to ignore it. So we'll talk about it. But we will always bring it back to whatever is true. I, I, I so appreciate the time you spend here on Saturdays or if you're listening live or whenever on, on the podcast. But um, I appreciate it so much that I don't want you to leave here with anything other than these things. So that's the theme moving forward. Whatever is true. I've got a secondary theme as well. Uh, I know so little. I want to explain coming up a little uh, later where this comes from in a bigger context. Uh, but let me give you just an example of, of this. So again, the theme is I know so little. Quick question. And this is a silly example. Like I said, we'll, we'll give a real example coming up, but just a silly example. How big is Greenland? If you're near your a computer, grab Google map, right? Just the map of the world. Or just you can envision it. How big is Greenland? And if you've seen Mighty Ducks 2, Greenland is full of ice. Iceland is very nice. I always think of that when I think Greenland. But every map of, of, uh, of the world, Greenland is huge. It's humongous. It's bigger than Africa. It's, it's definitely bigger than North America. So it's bigger than Canada, America, and Mexico. Just Greenland. It's humongous. Well, here's the thing. Africa is 14 times as big as Greenland. But if you look at a map, Greenland is bigger than Africa. Now, I'm not just telling you that Africa is a little bit bigger than Greenland. It's 14 times as big. Greenland is actually only as big as the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Zaire, right in the middle of Africa. So it's as big as one country in Africa, not even the biggest country in Africa. What? what, what? It's not even close. How could that be? Now, we don't need to go into a science experiment here, but uh, our science lesson, but the Earth is a globe. So when you flatten it out, it's just distorted. So anything that's closer to the poles looks way bigger than it actually is. That's why Russia's not nearly as big uh, as it looks on the map either. So it's just, it's just screwed up. And we, we don't even... So here, I heard another example. Uh, Greenland is smaller than Egypt and Libya. So next time you look at a map, if you don't have one in front of you, you'll, you'll see, you'll look at it, you'll be like, holy cow, Greenland is humongous. No, it's not. So who cares? Like, no one cares about that. The point is, our perception about things is way off. Way off. And even the things that we think are so in tune and so rock solid and so right, probably need a little retuning, which is why we're going to focus on what is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. And it's going to take some humility to constantly question our perspective, constantly question uh, everything we think we know to make sure that we are tuned properly. If we don't do that, then we'll never be able to fully focus on whatever is true. So happy new year. Glad you're here. All that being said, let's get started. So take a break here. We'll get back. Uh, I want to talk about millennials. They're the worst. And I am one, I guess. I think I'm one of the older millennials. I don't have Snapchat though, so I don't know if that disqualifies me. But all the adjectives that are used to describe millennials, you know them, lazy, narcissistic, entitled. Probably all true for the most part. Uh, but there's one word 
one characteristic that I think is most applicable, even more than lazy and entitled. And this one characteristic is the source of most problems of that generation. I'll tell you what it is. We'll talk about it next. one 888 and Slater Radio on uh, Twitter. This is the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. From Simon Sinek, he has maybe the best TED Talk ever, Uh, definitely top three. Uh, So just Google his name, you'll find it, Simon, S-I-N-E-K. He's been on Glenn's show a few times as well. He was on Glenn, it's been like a year or so ago, and and the title of this uh, topic was Humans Are Designed to Be Good, and that was a great interview as well. Anyway, uh, his TED Talk was a couple years ago, and he hasn't stopped doing his thing. It's fantastic. This is an interview he did. Uh, about millennials it's 15 minutes i just want to play one part of it here maybe as the weeks go on we can play uh, a little bit more of it but he says millennials are in the workplace seen as lazy and entitled and narcissistic but he went a little deeper talked to a bunch of millennials in the workplace and, and it finds out it turns out that what millennials want is to work at a place with purpose which is good they want to make an impact, whatever that means. And they want perks. So businesses, companies, they, they try to do that, right? Try to make sure that millennials have purpose, make sure that they can see the impact they're making, and they give them perks. They give them free food and beanbag chairs. So they get these things. But it turns out millennials are still not happy. They're still not fulfilled. Why not? So there's a few reasons. Uh, he lists out, he rattles off four. One is bad parenting. Two are technology changes. Three is environment. We'll talk about those as the weeks go on, but I want to focus on the fourth one, impatience. So this is Simon Sinek talking about that problem, how, about that problem, how millennials are impatient. Now this is talking about millennials, but I think this is true for everyone to a certain extent. Here it is, 1250. Right? Now you add in the sense of impatience. Right? They've grown up in a world of instant gratification. You want to buy something, you go on Amazon, it arrives the next day. You want to watch a movie, log on and watch a movie. You don't check movie times. You want to watch a TV show, binge. You don't even have to wait week to week to week. Right? I know people who skip seasons just so they can binge at the end of the season. Right? <laughs> instant gratification. You want to go on a date, you don't even have to learn how to be like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> You don't even have to learn and practice that skill. You don't have to be the uncomfortable one who says, says yes when you mean no and says no when you mean no and yes when you... You don't have to swipe right. Bang, I'm a stud. <laughs> right? You don't have to learn the social coping mechanisms. Right? Everything you want, you can have instantaneously. Everything you want, instant gratification. Except job satisfaction 
and strength of relationships, there ain't no app for that. They are slow, meandering, uncomfortable, messy processes. And so I keep meeting these wonderful, fantastic, idealistic, hardworking, smart kids. They've just graduated school. They're in their entry-level job. And I sit down with them and I go, how's it going? They go, I think I'm going to quit. I'm like, why? They're like, I'm not making an impact. I'm like, you've been here eight months. <laughs> you know? It's as if they're standing at the foot of a mountain. And they have this abstract concept called impact that they want to have in the world, which is the summit. What they don't see is the mountain. I don't care if you go up the mountain quickly or slowly, but there's still a mountain. And so what this young generation needs to learn is patience. That some things that really, really matter, like love or job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self-confidence, a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time. Sometimes you can expedite pieces of it, but the overall journey is arduous and long and difficult. And if you don't ask for help and learn that skill set, you will fall off the mountain. Or you will, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, and we're already seeing it, the worst case scenario is we're seeing an increase in suicide rates. We're seeing an increase in this generation. We're seeing an increase in accidental deaths due to drug overdoses. We're seeing more and more kids drop out of school or take leaves of absence due to depression. Unheard of. These are all, this, is, this is really bad. The best case scenario, the best, those are all bad cases, right? The best case scenario is you'll have an entire population growing up and going through life and just never really finding joy. They'll never really find deep, deep fulfillment in work or in life. They'll just, just waft through life and it'll be just, it's fine. How, how, how's your job? It's fine. The same as yesterday. How's your relationship? It's fine. Like that's, that's the best case scenario which leads me to the, the fourth point, which is environment. Which we can stop there. How good is that? Uh, remember that last part about the, uh, the, I'm fine. We'll get to that a little later. How about the line, instant gratification isn't fast enough? Right? That, that's where we're living in right now. Instant gratification isn't fast enough. Millennials, among all the other things that you can characterize them, are impatient. And it makes sense. Our whole lives, everything has been fast. Everything. So I'm reading this uh, biography about Ulysses S. Grant. So you're going to hear a lot of Grant stories over the next uh, couple weeks. He was traveling from his uh, town, his uh, hometown in Ohio, Georgetown, Ohio, to West Point in New York. And he got on a boat in this tiny little town on the Ohio River and sailed on this little boat to Pittsburgh. And when he got to Pittsburgh, he had a choice. He was going to Philadelphia was the next stop. He could either take a horse and, and wagon. The problem with the horse and wagon is it was so shaky, it would mess up your brain, right? You just, it would, like your, it would rattle your bones. It was so unbelievably uncomfortable. But the benefit was it went eight miles per hour. Or you could take the much slower canal boats. Ulysses went with the canal boat. So then he gets to Philadelphia and he could board a train. First time ever. He said, what an experience. He wrote this in his autobiography. He said, what an experience. I thought the perfection of rapid transit had been reached. How fast did this train go? How fast do you think the train went? 
from Philadelphia to New York City. Perfection of rapid transit had been reached. How fast did it go? Keep in mind the horse and wagon went at eight miles an hour. The train, 18 miles per hour. He wrote that 18 miles per hour seemed like he was annihilating space. (laughs) Think about that. Annihilating space at 18 miles per hour. That's a traffic jam. But back then it was annihilating space. The perfection of rapid transit had been reached at 18 miles per hour. Okay, so, so obviously things have gotten much faster since then. So of course, millennials are going to expect things to be fast. The problem is we expect everything to be fast. We expect, sure, uh, download speeds to be fast, but we also expect fulfillment to be fast. We expect our dreams to be achieved like American Idol style overnight. It's the expectation that millennials are going to be CEOs or superstars in a week or two. We've told the story before of the CEO who had an intern come into his office and the intern, the intern said he'd be running the company in eight months. <laughs> the CEO's like, I've been here 37 years. What are you talking about? Why, do they, why would a millennial even think that way? It's because everything has been so fast that they've been almost trained to be impatient or maybe, maybe not trained to be impatient, but not trained to be patient. And I look at the lifespan of Ulysses S. Grant. It seems like he, and this, it's such a shame that he's not studied as much. I didn't know anything about him before I started reading the book. He lived 10 lives before the Civil War even broke out, before he even became a general in the Civil War. He lived so many incredible lives, well before he became president. And then he lived a few more lives after that. But you just look at the story arc of his life, and it took time. And, and he needed to have each phase in order to succeed in the next and, and to, to succeed in, in the last, which is basically his presidency. He did a couple more things after that, but presidency was the culmination, right? He needed every phase before that in order to be successful in that last phase. He needed to marinate in each phase. He needed each step. He didn't rush it. We're always in a rush, right? We're always in a rush. Always, always, always. And millennials are in a constant state of rush daily and also just their life in general constant state of rush and nothing good ever comes from this. And this isn't just true for millennials. It's true for almost everyone. My small groups, we did a uh, sermon series, Bible study on um, excavation. And, and the guy painted this imagery of when you're in your 20s, 30s, you look around at your peers and it looks like everyone's building these skyscrapers. It looks like everyone's so successful. And this is because of social media. And this is what Simon Sinek went on to talk about with technology. And um, everyone can can create an image of who they really are on Instagram and all the 60. rest. So we look around at the giant buildings, these skyscrapers that our peers are building around us. And we have just this two-story house or whatever. And he says, no, you know what? Don't rush. Excavate. Use your 20s, use your 30s as excavation time. Find out who you really are and who you really want to be. So that way, when it is time to build, you can build a a tower that will actually last. So that's my encouragement to to millennials is to not rush and, and spend this time excavating. You'll be way, way better off. 
All right, I want to get to that last point that Simon talked about. The, uh, at best, how are things going at work? Fine. How are you? Fine. That's the best case scenario. And that's not even good. We'll chat about that coming up next. 1-888-900-3393 and Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. So there's one last point on this and then we'll uh, move on. The last week at off and uh, wife and I, we binged True Detective season one. Uh, I tried watching it like a year ago. And it was way too dark. I got. I don't need more drama. I don't need more dark things. So I couldn't. I couldn't get into it at all. And I was. I think I stopped after three episodes. Maybe I don't even know if I made it through episode three. I was like, ah, I don't need this. Uh, but everyone just keeps raving about it. So we we tried again. I pushed through, and I think I expected it to be dark, so it wasn't as shocking. Uh, it's awesome. So uh, glad we we pushed through. So there's a scene in. I'm not giving anything away if you haven't seen it. But there's a scene in, in maybe the last episode where the two main characters catch up after 17 years and they ask each other how they're doing and they each say, or they ask what they're doing. Yeah. What are you up to? And they each say nothing. I work and go home. And it's their way of saying they're lonely because as you see in the show, they've destroyed every meaningful relationship in their lives. And now their life has been reduced to I work and I go home. No relationships. Why not? They rushed. They rushed. They never prioritized family. And there's a ton of other issues too, but they, they threw themselves so deeply into their job that there's no time for a meaningful relationship. They tried to take shortcuts on everything, on, on the relationship part, and they just couldn't. So maybe some, maybe a New Year's resolution. Slow down. Slow down. Simon Sinek, one last thing on this. Simon in, in his... Uh, in that video, he says one reason why millennials are so lonely and depressed is because they're they're rushing, right, and, and obsessed with their phones. And and because we're in our phones all the time, we we miss opportunities when relationships are formed. Think of any boardroom you've ever been in, any meeting you've ever been in with a bunch of people. You got twenty people around a table, a boardroom table, and everyone's on their phone waiting for the meeting to start. Right, every single person is typing away something on their phone. Those are opportunities when people used to sit around and say, hey, Charlie, how's your dad? Oh, he's doing much better. Thank you. That's how you form relationships. Or, man, I just, I'm so stressed. What's going on? I can't get this project done. Oh, man, I'll help you out with that. That's how trust is formed. We skip over those things. And these moments don't happen because everyone's on their phone and everyone's in a rush. And when you have no relationships, you get lonely and depressed. You may be around people all day, but the rush, 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 I'm, I'm out. I don't want to miss out on those relationships anymore. That's why I bought a flip phone, among other reasons. But um, let's try not to rush. It doesn't mean do less. I'm not saying do less. Just slow down. All right, I want to uh, talk about this Don Lemon situation. So I, I don't, I don't, I can't think of any other scenario, at least recently, when this has been more clear that there's certain people. Generally, they fall into the progressive category that have a value system or a worldview that 
makes them unwilling or unable to recognize evil. And, and I think it comes from this cult, this fetish of tolerance. And, and it's infected people so badly that nothing can be evil. And, and you hear it like, oh, well, you know, to each his own. Or I can't judge. Who am I to say? Right? <laughs> You've heard all that before. Now, you know what happened in Chicago. You had these four people kidnapped and bound and gagged a, a mentally disabled 18-year-old. I still don't exactly need what, know what mentally disabled means in this context for him. There's a spectrum of that, right? I don't know what, uh, what his situation was, but it doesn't matter. I mean, they tortured him. He was able to escape, and, and the, the people live-streamed it on, on Facebook. Right? So you know the story. We don't need to go into that. But the next day or whenever, CNN, uh, Don Lemon had a guest, and the guest said, but at the end of the day, you just try to wrap your head around evil. That's what this is. It's evil. It's brutality. It's man's inhumanity to man. And Don Lemon said, I don't think it's evil. I don't think it's evil. I think these are young people, and I think they have bad home training. And, okay, first, first, first things first. Uh, I don't get outraged at what people say anymore. I'm getting too old for this. Instead, I really just want to understand why people react a certain way. What made Don Lemon decide to even contest for one second the suggestion that tying up and torturing another human being is evil or not? Like, why, why even question that? <laughs> what, what in his brain, as he was listening to that, made him decide to challenge that argument. That's such a no-brainer argument. Like, that's, that's something, if I was Don Lemon, I'd be like, okay, yes, that's right. And then you just move on to the next question. Just go with that. Why would he even question that? So that's what I've been thinking about the last couple of days. And, and uh, here's my answer. It's because there's no such thing as objective truth to many people. There's no such thing as right and wrong, they think. It's all relative. So who is he to say it's evil? Well, I'll, I'll tell you exactly who you are, Don Lemon, to say it's evil. You are an adult male with a soul and a conscience and a moral compass written on your heart. That's who you are. And you also are an adult male with a brain who can decipher right and wrong. But it's so funny because he denies those things and then calls it enlightened. Right? Like That's the enlightened thing. If you ignore your conscience and you ignore a moral compass or you, you deny that there's, and you, you, you ignore right and wrong and you say, you just, you just, you flip it off with, um, well, who am I to say? Like, that's the enlightened point of view. That's what's so odd about the whole thing. So yes, Don, yes, bad parenting, obviously. But that doesn't excuse the evil and that doesn't uh, mean that it's also not evil. <laughs> right? I mean, it can be both, I guess is the point. It's not one or the other. It can be both. It can be bad parenting, which it probably is, and evil. You know, it's, the bad parenting, listen, we talk, you know, you've heard the show before. We talk about parenting all the time. We talk about uh, strong families, the importance of them all the time. A broken family may put a, a child on a path maybe where they uh, don't know how to read or they don't know how to get a nice firm handshake and look someone in the eyes. Maybe they'll abuse drugs. Maybe they'll skip school. 
Okay, these are kind of the things that could happen if you're in an unstable home. But when you bound and gag and cut and torture someone, like that, that's not just bad parenting. That's also evil, Don. But let me tell you what's bothering me more than anything about uh, this whole thing. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he was a Democratic senator in New York a couple decades back. He tells the story of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. I'm sure you've heard of it before. You may not know the details, but you've heard of it. It was in 1929, Chicago, during Prohibition, on February 14th, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Shocked the nation. It became a legend. Right? In the World Book Encyclopedia, and you can only fit so many things in the World Book Encyclopedia, right? The, the world, the history of the world. Two entries for the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And the country at that moment, like we couldn't take it anymore. And they, that's when they, that was the final straw. And, and then eventually the American people passed another constitutional amendment, ending the previous constitutional amendment, ending prohibition once and for all. Okay. So the St. Valentine's Day massacre, it's a massacre after all. How many people died in said massacre? How many people do you think died at the St. Valentine's Day massacre? Think about what happened afterwards, right? Like the nation shocked, mortified. We can't go on like this anymore. How many people were killed? 500? I mean, like, that's a, what does it have to be to be a massacre? 50? Seven. Seven people. Do you know how many people were shot in Chicago Christmas weekend? 60. Six zero. So, St. Valentine's Day massacre, seven people shocked the nation. Chicago Christmas weekend, 60. Yeah. Six zero, 60 people shot in Chicago. What the heck? All right, so check out this quote. This numbness, this near narcoleptic state can diminish the human condition to the level, and I love this imagery here, to the level of a combat infantryman who in a protracted campaign, can eat their battlefield rations seated on the bodies of the fallen. That's powerful imagery, right? So think of, um, you know, you if, if there's a bunch of dead people around you, you wouldn't be able to eat lunch. But if you're in a war, and you've been in this war for a year, and you're a combat infantryman, you know, you gotta eat, right? And you're just, you're used to it, right? It's a numbness, it's a near narcoleptic state. And he says, a society that loses its sense of outrage is doomed to extinction. When four people bound and gag someone and torture them, that should never be normalized. But neither should 60 shootings in a weekend in Chicago. But it all has, and that's a problem. So we got two forces at work here. We have uh, progressives not all, some, who are, well, if they're old like Don, old enough like Don Lemon, then they're unwilling to. If they're younger, then they're unable to. But either way, unwilling or unable to call evil what it is. And then we have a society that can't even see evil right in front of our face because we're so desensitized to it. That's, that's, that's not good. We need to uh, re retune ourselves that 
can't be numbed anymore. We can't be numb. And we can't ever be afraid to call out evil when we see it. Because if you don't, then you'll get numb to it. one 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. One last uh, quick segment on this, then we'll talk about toxic masculinity coming up next. I want to echo a uh, lecture from Victor Davis Hansen, who is the leading ancient military historian. This guy is so fascinating. He's a farmer in Fresno, and uh, I think he's a professor at Stanford now. Uh, the guy's a genius. And he gave a lecture a couple years back about Greece. And uh, it's I'll share one part of it. He talks about how... In the year about 220 BC, the Roman Republic was small. It was about a third the size of Italy. But they could defeat huge armies, massive opponents from all sides, Hannibal coming in from Spain and the rest. And the, and the Roman Republic could hold them back and defeat massive armies. But just a few hundred years later, when the Roman Empire is huge, rich, powerful, and they're not attacked by strong armies like Hannibal. They're attacked by thugs like Attila and the Huns and the Visigoths and the Vandals who like are nothing. They shouldn't have been a threat, but the Romans lost. Why? And he says, same story with the Greeks. In the year 400, they could push back 400,000 Persians, but just 100 years later, they couldn't stop 30,000 Macedonians. What gives? Why not? He says it's because Romans, first and foremost, and there's a few reasons, certainly, but the first and foremost, because Romans forgot what it meant to be Roman. They forgot what it meant to be Roman. And they weren't even sure if it was better than the alternative. And same thing, the Greeks forgot what it meant to be Greek. And if you forget, and you essentially give up because, you know, whether you're American or Mexican, I don't know, whatever, if you do that, history's cruel and you will be taken over. If you forget what it means to be American, for instance, then you will be eroded from within and you will be so weak that a, a pathetic invading army can take you over. That's how it's worked for all of history. And I'm not sure how invading armies work in the future, but one way or another, you can't survive as a people without, dare I say, patriotism. But that's what this progressive ethos is all about, right? What if there were no countries, we're citizens of the world, stuff like that. We'll talk about it a little later. So what does this have to do with Don Lemon? When you lose, and just personally, when you lose confidence in yourself, you're not going to achieve great things. You can't. And when we lose confidence in ourselves as a country, then we're not going to do great things as a country. Similarly, when we excuse evil behavior, when we excuse it as, as well, it's just bad home training, you are eroding our culture from within. Now, Victor Davis Hanson, in that same lecture, he goes on to say that the, the Greeks, the Romans, they were under no illusion that they had to be perfect to be good. We don't have to be perfect to be good in America. But when evil things happen, which they will because we live in a fallen world, you can stop the erosion by calling it what it is evil 
and then by seeking justice afterwards. But you have to be able to call it what it is. But to make excuse, you just allow it to erode. And we can't have that. To paraphrase Mark 325 and Abraham Lincoln, uh, a house divided cannot stand. A house eroded cannot stand. That is why it's important to call evil what it is. Remember the theme for the year. Whatever is true. Coming up next, toxic masculinity. Break it down. Coming up, Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. I want to talk about toxic masculinity. We'll start off with a little imagery here. I want you to imagine three men. Picture three men standing next to each other. One is Pajama Boy. You know Pajama Boy? Uh, he was in an advertisement for Obamacare back in 2009. Uh, 25 years old. Wearing his footy pajamas. Two hands on his hot cocoa mug by the fire. A little bit of a hipster beard, I believe. Encouraging you and, and other millennials to sign up for their parents' health insurance. That's Pajama Boy. Never had a callus on his hands and doesn't know how to throw a punch. Man number two, the brute in the bar. You know, the brute. Gets in fights all the time. All the rest. Then you have the third man. Does man number two make sense? We don't need any more description of him, right? Violent, angry, flies off, all the rest. Then man number three. Man number three is the unassuming Navy SEAL. So I live here in San Diego, and there's Navy SEALs all over the place. And a lot of them you wouldn't even know, right? I mean, yeah, you have some Navy SEALs who look like The Rock, but then most Navy SEALs just look like regular people. And you can tell who they are because you say, oh, you know, what do you do for a living? And they're like, oh, I'm in the military. They're super humble about it. And you're like, ah. And you keep asking. And you're like, oh, I'm in the Navy. Oh, yeah, what, what do you do? Uh, okay, that's SEAL, right? Like, they'll eventually get to it. Super unassuming. But they can kill you with their left index finger. But they don't. So what is toxic masculinity? That is when feminists view all men as the drunk brute in the bar. So to solve this problem, they want to make all men pajama boys. I believe the solution is to instead turn men or raise boys to become the quote-unquote, Navy SEAL. Strong, capable, powerful, but given a direction towards a noble purpose. That needs to be the goal. Not to emasculate men, but to give men a noble purpose and direction. So let me back it up a second. So toxic masculinity, thats it's been around for a long time, right? It's nothing new, but the term is, is on the newer side. Now, Oh, by the way, toxic masculinity is pretty much all masculinity. So we have to eliminate all of it. Uh, you see it on TV shows. You've seen it for a while. The dad's always a doofus. You see it in commercials coming from Madison Avenue. The man is always an idiot because he buys the wrong laundry detergent from the store or whatever. 
Or have you seen that the, there's a Toyota truck commercial where they're like they have spools of light in the back of the truck and then they go out to a field and they spell out welcome home Julia on the ground and there happens to be a, a woman soldier or I should say there is a woman soldier in a plane who happens to be sitting on the, 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 the window seat on the right side of the plane and she looks out the window and she sees welcome home Julia and it has the most pathetic soundtrack in the background. It's a song by the band perfume genius and, and you've heard this you've seen this before and you're like that's a truck commercial it's a commercial for a truck a pickup truck it's like weak pathetic namsy pamsy perfume genius song a truck uh, we're not gonna have time to get to it today but there's a new york times article just a couple days ago where uh, the new york times dispatched a reporter to texas to try and understand the rest of the country and it's hilarious because this article is written as if the reporter went on a safari in Africa, right? And they're, they're observing these homo sapiens west of the Hudson River. And they came across some. And it turns out, after observing these homo sapiens for a while, that they seem to have a strong affinity towards trucks. And it's, it's a hilarious article because they don't go on to explain why. Texans love trucks. They just say that they do. And, and it's like they're reporting back to people in New York. Hey, did you know Texans love trucks? Hilarious article. So I asked my wife, she's from Tennessee. I asked her why Southerners love trucks. And she said, because they're manly. So what are you talking about? She goes, I didn't know. A, she says, I didn't know a single man her entire life growing up in Tennessee, East Tennessee, outside Chattanooga. She, she didn't know a single adult male who did not drive a truck, except she had one friend. One friend who was rich and her dad had a four-door Lexus and, and she tells this in a hilarious way because of her Southern accent, but she's like, I thought it was nice, but weird. She said, every man she knew how to pick up. When we met, I drove a Jeep, Jeep, Jeep Grand Cherokee, and she questioned my manliness when we first met because I didn't drive a pickup truck. She judged me as less of a man because I was, we were in a, a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Everyone she knew drove, drove, drove a truck. But the New York Times couldn't even broach why Texans love trucks because they couldn't admit that they are indeed manly. Anyway, so Wisconsin-Madison uh, is the latest school to do this. They have what they call the Men's Project. The Men's Project creates a space for critical self-reflection and dialogue about what it means to be a man and how masculinity impacts us and those around us. And again, the point of the program, just as is the point of feminism, is to make men more like women. All of our problems in our culture, they say, is because men don't act enough like women. So we're going to turn the brutes, as all men are, into pajama boys. Uh, I want to quote David French here. I'm going to quote him at length just because it's so good. He says, here's the problem. Vulnerability, which is what this program is all about. It's about teaching men to be more vulnerable. Vulnerability is not a virtue. It, it's a morally neutral characteristic at best, and it's a vice at worst, and yes, some men are more naturally sensitive than others. That's fine. But, but we now ask, no, we beg men to indulge their emotions. As if the antidote to awful male aggression is a good cry. David French says there's a good reason. There are good reasons why generations of fathers have taught their sons to man up. And it's not because young boys are blank canvases on which the patriarchy can paint its oppression. It's because men in general have essential natures that are different from women. 
we tend to be more aggressive, more energetic, and less nurturing than women. And this is the key. The fundamental challenge of raising boys is in channeling that nature in productive ways, not in denying or trying to eradicate its existence. In other words, we need to make men more purposeful, not more vulnerable. And we are failing in that key task. Feminism has infected child rearing and modern education so thoroughly that legions of parents and teachers are adrift and clueless. They have no idea what to do with their sons other than medicate them if they're acting up, right? And absent fathers compound and confuse and create yawning cultural voids. But here's the question. What better equips a man to confront a difficult and challenging world? Because it is a difficult and challenging world, right? So what better equips a man to confront that? Is it more tears or is it more toughness? Is it teaching men to be compassionate or to be objects of compassion? Gosh, I love that so much. So I have a three-month-old now, Jack. Jack Wilder. Jack Wilder Slater. Manly name. And I'm going to teach him to be a compassionate man. But I'm not going to raise him to be an object of compassion. What good is that? The vulnerable male's cry is help me. The masculine male's quest is to become the helper. Boys will be boys, but they won't all become men. For a father, there are few more rewarding things in life than helping a son become a man. To watch him test himself in productive ways. And to help him cultivate and demonstrate a a protective spirit. Among the great gifts a father can give a son is a sense of masculine purpose. So see the difference there? In that that vision, which is the one I'm going to be using. Or the vision of, of making men objects and boys objects of compassion. I see no benefit to that. I'll give you an example of channeling manliness. John Wayne, um, which is a good place to start, in the movie McClintock, he says, you've got to be a man first before you can be a gentleman. you got to be a man first before you can be a gentleman. You need first the, the core characteristics of masculinity, strength, courage, those things, right? You have to have those characteristics and then constraint, right? You have to have the power and the ability and the confidence to impose your way, but then you voluntarily restrain that. And instead of your way, you use those powers to serve someone else. That's how you be a gentleman. But you can't go about it the other way. Like the, the, the feminism in our culture today says you need to be a gentleman before you become a man or a gentleman, and then you don't have to be a man. But in the words of Brett McKay, he says, without the structure of the hard tactical virtues of manliness behind them, the gentle virtues shapelessly droop and sag and fail to engender the same kind of respect. There was a 17th century philosopher, a French philosopher, I forget his name, but he said, nobody deserves to be praised for goodness unless he's strong enough to be bad. For any other goodness is usually merely inertia or lack of willpower, right? So if someone's good just because they're blech, just because they're lazy, like that's not good. That's, that's, just, that's just nothing. So you don't get praised for being good if you're just a sack of potatoes. You're praised for being good because you take the, the, the strength you have 
that could be used for bad and instead channel it to something righteous and noble. Makes sense. So this is what they don't get about toxic manliness because toxic masculinity in their world can only be bad. Hence, it's toxicness. I'll take a break more. I got a lot more to say about it. We'll clear it up next. If you have any other questions, 1-800-933-93-1-888-933-93 and Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. for being here talking about toxic masculinity let me just do a quick update and then we'll uh i'm gonna tell, tell a couple stories here so our culture and and colleges here are they toxic masculinity is a big problem right so so anything masculine strength power confidence a protective instinct these are inherently bad things they say and they need to be eradicated and they can be eliminated by teaching men to be more like women. It used to be said to get in touch with your feminine side. Uh, but now the key word is, is vulnerable. You need to be more, be more vulnerable. Now, of course, obviously, men need to get in touch with emotions and all that stuff. I, I remember my, when my wife said, you don't have any emotion. <laughs> That's not a good day, right? So I've been working on that. That's all good. But that doesn't mean you need to become pajama boy. Because these aspects of men can be used for evil, but they can also be used for good. So instead of eradicating them, they need to be channeled to productive purposes. Because I believe if we eliminate these virtues from men, then men become pathetic and lifeless and purposeless and depressed and burdens on society. So we need to increase the strength and power and confidence of boys. And we need to raise them so that they apply those characteristics to noble pursuits. Make sense? So a quick story on this. Odysseus was a young man, young boy, and he visited his grandfather. And they had a Big feast, and then they went out with a bunch of his uncles to go hunt in the woods. So they're walking in the woods, and a giant boar comes out of nowhere, jumps in front of the whole group. Now, Odysseus is the youngest person in the group by far. He's a kid amongst men, but he's the first to launch at the boar with a spear. Now, he misses, right? The boar dodges it and attacks him and gets him on the knee. But Odysseus backs up and then kills the boar. He gets this gnarly scar on his, on his leg. And he goes back home and he tells his parents all about what happened. And he tells it with great pride, as you could imagine, right? This moment was, it was a rite of passage for Odysseus, his first big hunt. But not only that, it was, it was a moment to show his, to prove his, his personal courage, but also his ability to cooperate with other men because back then, uh, that was really important to prepare yourself for battle, right? Because that was one of the highest ranks was, was a warrior, right? So this was his first, you know, kid doing a warrior-like thing. So he gets his big gnarly scar. It's awesome. 20 years later, he goes back to his hometown and he's keeping his identity a secret. So he dresses up as a beggar. Long story short, a, a woman ends up washing his feet and she thinks he's just a beggar. But as she's watching his, washing his feet, he, she looks up and she notices this scar on his knee, and she says, you are Odysseus. She recognizes him from the scar that he received as a boy. So that scar not only proved his identity at that moment, but that scar established his identity. It established it in the first place. Scars for all of history have been badges of honor. 
and not only in all of history, but in every culture everywhere. You name it, Africa, Asia, Europe, Latin America, South America, for all time, everywhere, scars were honorable, honorable because it showed your readiness to protect. And you know that something is ingrained in, in, you, in, your, in your soul and you know that it's written on your heart if it's true for all cultures for all time. Okay, this isn't a Western European thing. This is everyone everywhere. Scars were always seen as a badge of honor because it showed your readiness to protect. Today, I fear that we're teaching boys to avoid the fight. Or maybe even worse, we're teaching them that there is no fight. That there's nothing worth fighting for. Instead, you should be soft and gentle and weak. Our culture tells men there's nothing worth protecting. There's no reason to get a scar. And if you do get a scar, you don't talk about it as a point of pride. You talk about it as if it's something you need to cry about. Alexander the Great was fending off a mutiny from his men. So he gets up in front of everyone and he gives this baller speech where he says, basically, if there's anyone here, anyone here amongst the thousands of, of, of soldiers, if there's anyone here who has more scars on them than me, step here, step up. Let me see. And then he says, the scars on my body, they're on the front of me. They're on the front. I've been cut by swords, shot by arrows, hit by stones, all for the sake of your lives, your glory, your wealth. Right? There's, there's no scars on my back because I would never ran from the fight. I always went head first into it. I want my son Jack to have a lot of scars. Not just physical scars, but all types of scars. John Bunyan in uh, The Pilgrim's Progress, which everyone has to read. He says, my marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness that I have fought his battles. God, that I have fought his battles who will now be my rewarder. There's all types of battles to fight. You know, it's odd we think, uh, maybe we can talk about this in the next segment, actually. like The only reason feminism, actually, I'll leave that. Coming up next, we'll talk about why feminism is even able to exist today. But it's odd because we think we're so safe, so protected, right? Everything's so great, we're so wealthy that there are no more battles to fight, right? It's, it's the enlightened view, to go back to what we talked about in the last hour, right? The enlightened thing is to think that we're, we're post-war, post-conflict, post-battle. And... Yeah, maybe, like maybe we're post, you know, two enemies lining up like revolutionary war style and you know, shooting at each other as they march towards each other, right? We post that, okay. But that doesn't mean there's no more battles to fight. There will always be battles to fight. And I want my son to fight battles. Otherwise, what's the point of being a man at all? One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. When I come back, uh, we can do that. We'll chat about why feminism is even able to be a thing, right? So, for all of human history, men were men, and everything that, that means. But only now is the first time ever when that is seen as a bad thing. Why now? 
By thousands of years, it's been one way, and now it's supposed to be something different? Why? What happened recently that this is able to be a thing, even? Talk about that next. And well, actually, we can uh, relate it to Donald Trump in the election. We'll do it next. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. just want to die without a few scars it's nothing to have a beautiful stock body you see those cars that are completely stock cherry right out of the dealer's showroom in 1955 and i always think what a waste toxic masculinity something we're told we need to eliminate from our uh, society by the way i should note when i uh i mentioned that quote from uh, alexander the great the other day on my on my local show and i got an email from Oh, an astute listener who said, Slater, hold on. You told that story a while back, but it wasn't Alexander the Great. It was someone else. Right? The, the story of, uh, listen, I, I have all these scars on the front of my body fighting for your glory, right? Basically, he was saying, I'm, 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 I, Alexander the Great, I'm not asking you people to do anything that I haven't done myself. So I got an email from someone that says, Slater, wasn't that another person who gave that speech about the wounds on the front of their body and all that? Indeed, well done, sir. I've told the story before of uh, Lucius Paulus. This was 200 BC. He won a, a big battle for Rome. And he came home, and the military people didn't think that they got enough money. They didn't get enough spoils from the big victory. So one of the soldiers led a mutiny. Right? He wanted to take over the military. His name was uh, Galba. So Marcus Servilius, who was a war hero, he got up and he spoke in defense of the general Paulus. And he said, basically, don't listen to that guy. Don't listen to that Galba guy. He's learned nothing except how to make great speeches. I have fought 23 battles. All right, so who are you going to listen to? This guy who just talks a good game or the person who's actually lived it? And Marcus Servilia says, my body is covered with honorable scars. Everyone received in front. And he says, as an old soldier, I've often shown this body of mine hacked with the sword to the young ones. Let Galba, let this other guy who's like creating the mutiny, let Galba strip and show his smooth skin with not a scar upon it. <laughs> what an awesome charge to make against someone, right? So similar story there. Anyway, I want to read this quote here from, this is Leslie Eastman. We'll bring this to politics now here. She was responding to someone at Huffington Post who was critical of the 53% of white women who voted for Trump. And this is her response to that. And then I'll explain how feminism can even exist today at all. So anyway, Leslie says, uh, so this is basically saying this is why I, a white woman, and this is why 53% of white women or many of those 53% voted for uh, Donald Trump. She says, I am the wife of a white husband who's a kind, hard-working, devoted family man. I'm the mother of a white son who's the perfect mix of sweet and smart. I'm the sister of a white brother who served this country honorably as a United States Marine. I'm the aunt of a white nephew who's also served this country in the Army. I'm the daughter of a white father who won a Pulitzer Prize covering the race riots in Detroit in an effort to support civil rights. I'm the best friend of a white co-blogger blogger, who served in various hotspots around the globe as a Green Beret. And I'm the employee of a white male employer who's an awesome boss and a substantial taxpayer. 
She says, I see how hard all of these men work and how much they give to family and friends and how much they give to this country. These are my primary relationships. When I vote, listen to how, un, how politically incorrect this is. When I vote, the quality of their lives are go, <clears throat> excuse me, the quality of their lives are going to be a significant part of my decision matrix. When life under Donald Trump, while life under Donald Trump may not be perfect for them, I anticipate that their lives will be better because of the policies that Trump plans to enact and the people he intends to put in charge. So will mine. And, and she says, uh, she ends with this. The thing I like best about electing Donald Trump is the era of the beta male is over. So it's weird that the, it makes me uncomfortable. Even after the, the last two seconds we had about the importance of masculinity and directing it to a noble purpose and all the rest, serving others. Basically, that's it. I'm, our number one theme for Jack is we want him to um, protect the vulnerable. Right? The, the, the proud moment that I just I pray for and I'm trying to raise my son to, to, to do is, I don't know how old, 10, and he goes in the lunchroom and he sees uh, someone sitting alone. For whatever reason, that kid is sitting alone and I want my son to go over and sit with him. Right? That's just one of or you know, stop a fight, someone being bullied on or whatever. I just want him to protect the vulnerable so badly. That's what an alpha male really is. But anyway, I go on this whole these last you know whole hour here about the importance of masculinity and directing it to noble purposes and all that. And then even I am uncomfortable with this woman's response about why she voted for Donald Trump and how politically incorrect this is when she's basically like, yeah, I'm a woman and I voted for Trump because I have a lot of men in my life who provide and protect and serve me. And I think their life will be better under Trump and therefore my life will be better. That is so politically incorrect. Because we're told the president is supposed to focus on uh, women's issues. I don't even know what a woman's issue is. I, I told this before I asked my wife a couple of years ago what the three most important issues for her are. And she said, education, national defense, and the economy. And I said, no, no, but what about birth control or whatever? She's like, whatever. education, national defense, the economy. That's, there's your woman's issues. And she's saying, listen, I just want a country where the men in my life are thriving. It's bold. All right, last point. We'll move on to a different topic. How is this type of feminism even able to exist today? Right? For all of human history. For all of it. And again, this is how you know that men were designed, created to be like this. Because it's been the case every culture for all time. If it's just, you know, this way with Western men and men in China are different, in, then it's cultural, right? But this isn't cultural. This is much deeper than that. So why is feminism, which comes in and says, no, men, you shouldn't be like this. How is it able to happen? Why? Because we live in an unprecedented prosperous time. In the past, the very first and second and third, fourth, and all the way to last priority was to protect because of invading tribes that could come in at any moment. So the first priority was protection. That's why warrior was such a high rank. And now, you know, the protection part's pretty much, pretty much taken care of. Right? At least we don't see 
a lot of our soldiers and service members who do a lot of that protecting. Right? So we don't not not everyone's responsible for it. I'll put it like that. In the past, every man was responsible for protecting the tribe. Not anymore. One percent of Americans are in the military. So that's a there's that's the second or that's the first priority of a man: protect. The second is to provide. But now, and I'm not begrudging this. I'm just telling you what women can provide, right? Or uh, the government can provide. So men aren't needed here exclusively anymore either. So the man's role to protect and provide have been taken away. So now what do men do? Well, according to every TV commercial, they go to the grocery store and get the wrong laundry detergent and get yelled at, right? So that's, that's the role of a man now. So what do we do? Well, when it comes to providing, we have to strengthen marriages, as always, and get the government out of the charity game, out of the welfare game, which would require men to become providers once again. That's simple. We talk about that all the time. We also need to raise boys to find new fights. Every one, every person is made to fight for a cause. And we are told and we tell our kids that there's nothing more to protect, and that's a lie. I'll end here. Matt Chandler from the Village Church in Dallas. He says, where men fill the purpose and design of men, as the Bible has outlined it, humanity flourishes. And where men refuse to step into the space that men are called to fill, the world burns. You want to look at it economically? You want to look at it sociologically? Just do a secular study of what happens when men refuse to be husbands and refuse to be fathers. Look at what happens. Everything breaks. Everything. And it's a problem because cultural leaders today are encouraging men to not step into the space that men need to occupy. 1-888-933-93. So I encourage you to do the opposite of that. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, we're two hours in and we haven't really talked any politics. So why don't we do a couple minutes of politics here. Next segment, I want to talk about uh, populism, how it happens what it is exactly, and uh, we'll break that down. Uh, I want to talk about Betsy DeVos. So she is the uh, she's president-elect Trump's education secretary choice. A lot of attacks against her, uh, and I want to run, run through a few of them. Three, if we, get, if we have time. The first one is that she is against public education, which honestly would be fine by me, but she's not. Uh, this is USA Today's senior political reporter. Betsy DeVos is very much against public education. Uh, Washington Post, to Trump's education pick, the U.S. public school system is a dead end. Okay, so where did, where did that person get the quote, dead end? Why would this writer believe that she thinks public education is a dead end? She gave a speech in 2015 at South by Southwest. South by Southwest is a very tech, innovation-savvy gathering of people, right? So she gave a speech there about education, and she said, we are beneficiaries, we Americans, are beneficiaries of startups, ventures, and innovation in every other area of life. But we don't have that in education because it's a closed system, a closed industry, a closed market. It's a monopoly, a dead end. And the best and brightest innovators and risk takers steer clear of it. And as long as education remains a closed system, we will never see the education equivalents of Google, Facebook, Amazon, PayPal, Wikipedia, or Uber. Okay? 
end quote. How disingenuous do you need to be in order to hear that quote and come to the conclusion that she thinks public education is a dead end in, in, in totality? That is so wildly disingenuous when the point of her article or point of her speech is about innovation in public education. How amazing would it be if the Elon Musks of America were free to innovate in education and not just in everything else that Elon Musk is innovating in? But they can't because it's a closed system. It's a monopoly. That doesn't make her against public education. It just sees, it means that she sees the need and, and the way to change it, or at least why it hasn't changed. Nonsense. Second attack. She's an elitist. Now, <laughs> this deserves more time, but let me, I'll do it anyway. If you, if an alien from outer space, okay, so an alien from outer space came in and looked at the public education system in America. And I use alien because that means they have no background in what's happening and who the players are and what political parties are or anything. They just observed the public education system. They would come to the conclusion that the objective was to keep poor kids illiterate and unemployable. And from their perspective, some kids sneak through the cracks and can actually read. Lincoln High here in San Diego, 70% of high schoolers can't read. 70%. 70% can't. So it's like, oh, darn it. Don't, you know, from the aliens, it's like, oh, geez, look, I mean, obviously the objective is to make sure kids can't read because they're doing a bang up job of that. And some sneak through the cracks and actually can, unfortunately. Right? It's like totally backwards. So Betsy DeVos is an elitist. Why? Because she sends her kids to private school. Well, so does... Most politicians, so does the president. So that's absurd. What we want is to bring innovation and all the benefits of private and charter schools to everyone. How does that make you an elitist? This one's my favorite, though. Uh, She supports child labor. (laughs) She supports throwing kids in the sweatshops. How? Here's, Here's the deal. She has a lot of money. She's a billionaire. And she gives a lot of money to a group called the Acton Institute. It's a think tank in Michigan. It's a free market libertarian think tank. Uh, Acton is named after Lord Acton. He's the guy who said power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Lord Acton. Anyway, uh, someone in that group wrote an article supporting child sweatshop labor. So first of all, it wasn't even her who supports it. Right? It was, she gives money to a group and someone in the group wrote an article about it. So it's guilt by association, right? But the other thing is, that's not what the article was about. <laughs> the real headline of the article was, work is a gift our kids can handle. And the article is about the importance of working at fast food restaurants and grocery stores or whatever jobs teenagers do because they learn a lot of life lessons that can't be learned in the classroom but can be applied in the classroom. That was the article. So Huffington Post takes that and says that uh, she wants to bring back, uh, you know, textile mills and, and throw the kids in the coal mine. Like, what total, absolute nonsense. So we'll see what Betsy DeVos fights for. But I know she supports charter schools. I know she values free markets and education and obviously innovation in a public school monopoly. That's great. And if she can do those things, particularly in our inner cities, she and, and Donald Trump and the people they surround themselves with in this, in this effort can transform entire communities. 
I, the, the thing I'm most excited about because it has the absolute most potential for a real lasting and dramatic change is education reform, particularly in our inner cities. This is life changing for so many generations of people. Tons of potential here. And I hope Betsy DeVos does it. And I hope no one gets sidetracked by stupid accusations like she wants kids to be thrown in the coal mine. Like total nonsense. It's Mike Slater Show, Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Thanks for being here. Final hour. Um, Want to get a bit intellectual here, but uh, I think this analysis is really important. And I think it's almost entirely right. I want to see what you think. So this is a clip here of Jonathan Haidt. H-A-I-D-T. Hate it, maybe. And he's given a talk uh, with a member of the British Parliament, who we will also get to. But they're at a big auditorium in London, and they're talking about the rise of populism. And it's relevant, of course, in America because of Trump and in England because of the Brexit. Now, these two gentlemen, their point of view is that populism is not a great thing, but they get it and they understand it and they think there's a place for it. But they're still they don't like it. But I want to talk about why it happens. And, and we'll talk about, I really don't want to talk about Trump too much, but it's, it's, it's because populism is bigger than Trump, even. It, populism didn't happen because of Trump. Things happened that enabled Trump to step into this place. And I think that will make more sense after uh, this segment here. So I want to get into Jonathan's first argument here. Uh, let me give you a quick little background here. He says that when capitalism, there's a process here. So step one, when capitalism is introduced into a society, there is an explosion of wealth. And it's not just the rich getting richer. Everyone gets richer. And when everyone gets richer, a generation or two go by, and people start getting rights. Right? People demand rights or uh, you know, they, they, they want rights applied equally to them or whatever. Okay, And this is good, right? Then what happens? And we'll pick it up here. Let's go 1255. I, I've spent a lot of time reading the work of the, the psychologists and sociologists who create the World Values Survey. They survey, it started in Europe, now it's global, uh, every seven years that you can see this, these beautiful maps showing the whole world and where they are on this two-dimensional value space. And so Sweden and Scandinavia in the upper right, that means they have, their values are the most... Um, uh, it's, a, it's a, like freedom-loving, emancipative, that's the word, Emancipa freedom or emancipative values, and they're the most secular rational, so that's Sweden. And then the bottom left, from my perspective here, bottom left is like uh, mostly African and Islamic countries that still have the values appropriate to an agricultural society that has no trust in government, that has no faith that there will be food six months from now. So it's very, very different sets of values. As countries get wealthy, they move up and then to the right. They move to that zone where Scandinavia is now. And that's a good thing, it's a wonderful thing. What happens is then everyone's values change. In the next generation, they really begin to care a lot more about women's rights, gay rights, animal rights, human rights, the environment. So you get this very progressive shift in values. Okay, so with this sort of audience, I'm sure that all sounds great. So that's step one. But here's step two. 
once you have these incredibly prosperous, peaceful, progressive societies, they do, the people there begin to do a few things. Um, first of all, it's not everybody who has those values. It's everybody in the capital city and the university towns. They all have these values. They're okay, stop. Stop here. Okay. This, you will remember, is exactly what we said after the election. In, in the weeks following the election, when everyone's doing the postmortem, what happened? We said the great divide in this country, and not only the great divide in this country, but the great divide in all of human history everywhere, is city versus country. Approved it a hundred different ways, but I think just to prove how long this has been a thing, we read an Aesop's fable called The City Mouse versus The Country Mouse. Aesop's fables were written in the year 500? Or is it 500 BC? It may have been 500 BC. Hold on. Hold on, Eric. 500. Yeah, but still. 500, right? Long time ago. Right, So there's always been this divide between city folk and country folk for as long as there's been towns and cities. So it's nothing new, and it's exactly what's happening here uh, and in London. But we're going to focus here. It's exactly what's happening, uh, what happened here. Right, We have this change in values, but not everywhere. Let's keep going, 1256. So if you look at our countries, you know, in America, we're like pretty retrograde in some ways. But if you look at our, those, our bubble places, they're just like Sweden. And that means that these people now think that, you know, nation states... They're so arbitrary. And, you know, just, I mean, just imagine, imagine if there were no countries. It isn't hard to do, <laughs> you know? Imagine if there was nothing, nothing to kill or die for. No religion, too. So this is, this is the way the values shift. And when, so this is what I and others are calling the global, it's like the new left-right is like the globalists and, versus the nationalists. And so the globalist ethos is tear down the walls, tear down the borders, nation states are arbitrary. Why, you know, why should my government privilege the people who happen to be born here rather than people who are much poorer elsewhere? And so you get this globalist idea, you begin to get even a denial of patriotism. Uh, the claim, there's some hor uh, horrible, there's some pictures going around uh, right-wing media now in the United States, protesters, anti-Trump protesters holding up signs that say patriotism is racism. So you get people acting in this globalist way inviting immigration, spitting on the nation state, spitting on the country and people who are patriotic, um, and uh, very opposed to assimilation when there is integration, because that, as we say in America, on the, people on the left would say that's cultural genocide. All right, let me stop here for a second. So uh, real quick, Aesop's Fables, it was 500 BC. I agree with me. Um, everything you just explained right there is what's going on, right? Isn't it? Inviting... Immigration. Now, immigration is a natural thing. It's a good thing. But mm, like, what we're doing now is out of control, which we'll talk about in a little bit, the, the concept of out of control. But it's very different from immigration to what we're doing now, which is, oh, you're from a war-torn Middle Eastern country where we have zero background on your life and associations and you have no desire to be an American? Come on in. Like, what the heck is that? Very globalist. Barack Obama is a citizen of the world. He views himself as a citizen of the world. When he won the election in 2008, he did a victory tour, just like Trump. Trump did a, little, a victory tour, right, speeches. Um, and Barack Obama gave his speech. His very first speech was in, where was it? It was either, it was either Mobile, Alabama, or Grand Rapids, Michigan. I, 
Oh, no, that's right. Berlin. His first speech was in Berlin. And he opened his speech. The very first line, maybe the second line, was talking about how he is a citizen of the world, a fellow citizen of the world. And he said, our global citizenship binds us together. This is the president's ethos. This is his view of the world. This is why progressives find the concept of a wall so repugnant. Because there is no such thing as countries. We're all people. Patriotism is racist. Assimilation is cultural genocide. Nonsense, nonsense such as that. Yeah, so do you, I see this going on right now, right? It's globalism versus nationalism. All right, keep going now. There's one more thing he says here at the end of this clip uh, that, that will make you upset, probably. Uh, don't get upset by it yet. We will explain. Final clip here, 1257. So this is step two, is you get... Um, wealthy, wonderful, successful societies that are so attractive to poor people around the world, you get a flood of immigration and they're met by the globalists who say, welcome, 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 don't assimilate because that would, we don't want to deny you your culture. And this leads to step three, which is this triggers an incredible emotional reaction in people who have the psychological type known as authoritarianism. Now, it's a very negative term, um, but there's a lot of psychological diversity in this world. There are some people who are attracted to the Leninist vision, the, the John Lennon vision. There are other people who are more parochial, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, there are people who really care about hearth and home and God and country, and um, they are actually friends of, of order and stability, and they can, they're friends of many good things about civic life, but when they perceive that everybody's coming apart, the moral world is coming apart, that's when they get really racist, homophobic, uh, they want to clamp down, they want to restore moral order, and if anybody here saw Donald Trump's acceptance speech at the Republican National Committee, that's exactly what he said. He modeled himself after Richard Nixon's 1968 speech, a time when cities are burning, there are riots, and Nixon came in, law and order will be restored, and that's basically what Trump's whole speech was. So this... All right, so it makes sense? So, quick recap, countries... Uh, become capitalist countries, they get more prosperous. Then people in the cities become globalists. No such thing as borders, countries, all that stuff. Uh, everyone come on in. All the and the rest of the country says, whoa, 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 whoa. They react to that by becoming more nationalistic. That can be interpreted by people in the cities as being more racist and homophobic. Now, I know for a fact that that's not what conservatism is. Just a quick reminder, the bathroom bill, for instance, South Carolina, I think they're doing it in Texas or whatever, but South Carolina specifically, where this all started, people who have the globalist progressive view look at you or me against this bathroom bill as a homophobic or transphobic person or whatever. No, I look at it and say, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> how is this a priority? I have no job. Our borders are completely wide open. Terrorism is a threat. Our country's falling apart. And you're telling me the biggest issue is what bathroom people can go to? So I'm against it, not because I'm homophobic, because I'm reacting against misplaced priorities. Also, conservatives did not pick that fight. Remember, and this is a perfect microcosm of how the globalists, the city folk, start something, and then conservatives, country folk, react against it 
the whole transgender bathroom thing started because Charlotte passed an ordinance that said transgender people can't go to whatever bathroom they want. Then the conservatives in the state legislature said, whoa, 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 whoa. And, and tried to pass a bill that says, no, you can't do that, right? Conservatives did not pick this fight. Republicans in, in South Carolina legislature did not say, hey, you know what would be great? If we just out of nowhere passed a bill that says transgender people can't go to whatever bathroom they want. That was a reaction to something that Charlotte did. See how that works? So you have the globalists, the city folk, and then you got the people in the country. People in the country, they believe in uh, hearth and home, God and country. Which, by the way, was Yale's motto. Or Yale's motto is for God, for country, and for Yale. Which is ironic now because all those things, or the first two, are seen as negative, narrow-minded things, right? The motto of Yale is for God, for country, for Yale. Well, God, well, he doesn't exist, we're told. And then country, for country, well, a country shouldn't exist. So this is where we are right now. But I don't think build the wall was keep the Mexicans out as much as it was let's get things under control. And I want to explain more of that next because I think that is really important, especially as people in the cities, which usually that's where all our media comes out of and culture is generally formed in, in, within the cities. They're all saying that build the wall is keep the Mexicans out. But it really, it's not. I don't think it is. It, it's, it, it's a reaction of what the heck is going on here? Let's get things under control. That's what it is. I'll prove that next. one 888 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On the Blaze Radio Network. I want to make the argument here that the, the chant, build the wall... For instance, I'm not specifically talking about just this one thing, but all of Trump's populism, but just to pick one, uh, build the wall was not so much keep the Mexicans out as much as everything's out of control. We just got to get things in under control. I want to prove that here with Nick Clegg. He is a progressive member of uh, the parliament in England, and he's talking here about the rise of populism in his context. It's, it's the Brexit, but same thing with Trump. Here And he says there's two main reasons why populism occurred um, here and, and across the pond. First, the 2008 economic crisis. Here he talks about that, Clip 1258. I think it is impossible to exaggerate how angry that left our millions of our fellow citizens, with totally good reason. You know, you, you speak to folk who kind of say, look, the bank has screwed up, you politicians screwed up, the regulators screed up, and I haven't had a pay rise in eight, year, eight years. I mean, that's the longest period of time... For, for many, many people on lower middle incomes not to have a real terms wage increase, well, certainly since the oil shock in the early 1970s, possibly since the Second World War. So I think that sense of kind of, oh, God, you guys, you keep promising that things are going to get better. They don't for me. You screwed up in 2008. N- not a single bank has ended up, in this country at least, behind, behind bars. A little bit different in the States. I think that's one massive proximate. I mean, I would go so far as to say if 2008 had not happened, I wouldn't be surprised if the Brexit vote might have gone differently. Okay, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to nitpick, but I think there's two things going on there, and I think there's a distinction worth making. Um, I don't think people were too upset. Now, hear me out. I don't think people were too upset by the 2008, you know, economic crash. Now, I mean, of course, yes, people lost their homes, and it was disastrous for a lot of people, and I don't mean to minimize it at all. 
But I'm talking in the context of the lasting hatred of politicians and of government and elites. I don't think it was the crash itself as much as the slowest economic recovery afterwards since World War II. Right. So, so it was it, it was the crash. Yes, but mostly it was the fact that the recovery has been pathetic. It's slowest ever, longest ever. The economic the, the average economic growth prior to 1990. Let me let me reword this. For every recovery, so a recession happens and there's a recovery. For every recovery, the average economic growth of that recovery uh, was four percent. But for the last eight years, it's two percent. So it's the slow recovery that's grinding. I don't think people. I think people will excuse a market correction or even more like 2008 was a little more nefarious than that. But it's the decade-long recovery that, that's grinding for people. And over time, we lost trust, not only in specific politicians, but just in the entire institutional government itself. So what caused the populism of today? The economic crash of 2008, no doubt about it, and the slow recovery after. But it's the one-two punch, and this is the knockout punch, 10, 50, uh, 1259. And the second one, which then I think uh, compounded that sense of disenfranchisement and rage, was just the nightly spectacle on our television screens of people pouring into Europe from these scary conflicts happening kind of in the, in, in the Middle East and we didn't know what's going on and where are they going and why can no one tell us how many they are and where, oh my gosh, people are blowing themselves up and trying to kill people in Paris and Brussels. That elicits such a visceral sense of kind of a lack of control, which is why I think that the take back control refrain, right. which you may right. know, John, was the very sort of pungent refrain for the Brexit case just resonated so much with people who just saw a system mm -hmm. which in the most elemental sense, like who's coming in and out of your community, was out of control. Um, I think those two things, can. I mean, in many ways, when I describe it like that, I'm fascinated there were 48% people who voted for Remain um, because I think that was an incredibly heady emotional mix. So the what, what was Trump's... Uh, Slogan, make America great again, right? Do you know the Brexit slogan? It was take back control. So you have the refugee crisis, which is a visceral lack of control. And the slogan is take back control. That's all that is. When we talk about economics, people see, you know, they can see their wages not going up, but there's so many different ways to interpret and describe economic issues there's different areas of the country different sectors metrics numbers it's so hard to define and and have people really grasp economic issues because you could say oh a progressive could say oh uh, unemployment's down right unemployment rates down and then you come back well you're like well no the labor force participation rate's the lowest ever and they'll be like oh but the u16 or u6 number you'll be like oh but the u12 number it's like what but immigration the refugee crisis it's so obvious it's right in front of your face and as the member of parliament said, it's, it's the most, in the most elemental sense, the government has failed. And it's the worst, worst part than that. Like, they don't even care. In fact, they want it to happen. That's the globalist versus nationalist view. Right? The globalist being like, come on in. And you have the nationalist saying, what? That's what the election was about. That's what the Brexit was about. And that's what Trump was about. And that's what leads to populism. I don't even think it's Trump himself. I think the times were right for a Trump-like person. And then Trump, of course, went to the plate and you know, 
hit it out of the park. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. I want to make the argument here that the, the chant, build the wall, for instance, I'm not specifically talking about just this one thing, but all of Trump's populism, but just to pick one, uh, build the wall was not so much keep the Mexicans out as much as everything's out of control. We just got to get things in under control. I want to prove that here with Nick Clegg. He is a progressive member of uh, the parliament in England, and he's talking here about the rise of populism in his context. It's, it's the Brexit but same thing with Trump here. And he says there's two main reasons why populism occurred um, here and, and across the pond. First, the 2008 economic crisis. Here he talks about that, clip 1258. I think it is impossible to exaggerate how angry that left our millions of our fellow citizens, with totally good reason. You know, you, you speak to folk who kind of say, look, the bankers screwed up, you politicians screwed up, the regulators screwed up, and I haven't had a pay rise in eight, year, eight years. I mean, that's the longest period of time for, for many, many people on lower middle incomes not to have a real terms wage increase, well, certainly since the oil shock in the early 1970s, possibly since the Second World War. So I think that sense of kind of, oh, God, you guys, you keep promising that things are going to get better. They don't for me. You screwed up in 2008. N not a single banker has ended up in this country at least, behind, behind bars, a little bit different in the States. I think that's one massive proximate... I mean, I would go so far as to say if 2008 had not happened, I wouldn't be surprised if the Brexit vote might have gone differently. Okay, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to nitpick, but I think there's two things going on there, and I think there's a distinction worth making. Um, I don't think people were too upset. Now, hear me out. I don't think people were too upset by the 2008, you know, economic crash. And I mean, of course, yes, people lost their homes and it was disastrous for a lot of people. And I don't mean to minimize it at all. But I'm talking in the context of the lasting hatred of politicians and of government and elites. I don't think it was the crash itself as much as the slowest economic recovery afterwards since World War II. Right, so, so it was... It, it was the crash, yes, but mostly it was the fact that the recovery has been pathetic. It's slowest ever, longest ever. The economic, the, the average economic growth prior to 1990, let me, let me reword this. For every recovery, so a recession happens and there's a recovery. For every recovery, the average economic growth of that recovery uh, was 4%. But for the last eight years, it's 2%. So it's the slow recovery that's grinding. I don't think people... I, I think people will excuse a market correction or even more like 2008 was a little more nefarious than that. But it's the decade long recovery that that's grinding for people. And over time we lost trust, not only in specific politicians, but just in the entire institutional government itself. So what caused the populism of today? The economic crash of 2008, no doubt about it, and the slow recovery after. But it's the one-two punch, and this is the knockout punch, 10, 50, uh, 1259. And the second one, which then I think uh, compounded that sense of disenfranchisement and rage, was just the nightly spectacle on our television screens 
of people pouring into Europe from these scary conflicts happening kind of in the, in, in the Middle East, and we didn't know what's going on, and where are they going, and why can no one tell us how many they are, and where, oh my gosh, people are blowing themselves up and trying to kill people in Paris and Brussels. That elicits such a visceral sense of kind of a lack of control, which is why I think that the take-back control refrain, right. which you may right. know, John, was the That's very sort of pungent refrain for the Brexit case just resonated so much with people who just saw a system mm -hmm. which in the most elemental sense, like who's coming in and out of your community, was out of control. Um, I think those two things, can. I mean, in many ways, when I describe it like that, I'm fascinated that there were 48% people who voted for Remain um, because I think that was an incredibly heady emotional mix. So the, what, what was Trump's... Uh, slogan make america great again right do you know the brexit slogan it was take back control so you have the refugee crisis which is a visceral lack of control and the slogan is take back control that's all that is when we talk about economics people see you know they can see their wages not going up but there's so many different ways to interpret and describe economic issues there's different areas of the country different sectors metrics numbers it's so hard to define and and have people really grasp economic issues because you could say oh a progressive could say oh uh, unemployment's down right unemployment rates down and then you come back well you're like well no the, the labor force participation rate's the lowest ever and they'll be like oh but the u16 or u6 number you'll be like oh but the u12 number it's like what but immigration the refugee crisis it's so obvious it's right in front of your face and as the member of parliament said, it's, it's the most, in the most elemental sense, the government has failed. And it's the worst, worst part than that. Like, they don't even care. In fact, they want it to happen. That's the globalist versus nationalist view. Right? The globalist being like, come on in. And you have the nationalist saying, what? That's what the election was about. That's what the Brexit was about. And that's what Trump was about. And that's what leads to populism. I don't even think it's Trump himself. I think the times were right for a Trump-like person. And then Trump, of course, went to the plate and you know, hit it out of the park. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Thanks for being here. First show of the new year. Might as well end on uh, this note right here. I hope it's encouraging. Uh, I've noticed something the last few years, and no doubt you've seen it this year as well, this this first week of the new year, uh, about resolutions. Now, hear me out. I know your resolutions, they just tune out. But it's something like 92% of people don't keep their New Year's resolutions. So you got 8% of people who keep them throughout the year, which is pathetically low. So it's gotten to the point where people don't make resolutions or, or even laugh at the concept of making them. Uh, you, you, I, I don't make resolutions. What's the point? They're stupid. I never keep them. Ah. And, and I think whenever I hear someone say that, I don't want to be rude, but whenever I hear someone say that, I always think, well, that's not good. Like you should keep them. I was listening to Adam Carolla's podcast the other day and he, he went on this rant because someone came up to him and said, Adam, you have the number one podcast in the world. You have stage shows and books and documentaries and movies, 
but that's because you're wired that way. <laughs> he said, no, 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 no. I am not wired that way. I rewired myself this way. And he went on this huge rant about how his parents are total deadbeats in every single way. And he talked all about his family going back a couple of generations. And he talked all about his life until he was 35 and how he got his motorcycle towed four times and was arrested because every ticket he got went to warrant and how he was living with three other deadbeat guys in an apartment and wherever. And he was living in a back room, making no money, good working job to job and construction. And it goes on and on and on. And he's like, he looked around one day and he said, this is awful. I don't want to live like this. I need to rewire myself. So he looked at how he was wired and said, I don't like this. So I'm going to rewire. I need to change everything because I don't want to end up like these knuckleheads. So he started off with terrible initial wiring and then rewired himself. But it's so funny that someone would look at that and say, oh, you're just wired that way. No, he rewired himself that way. And my point is everyone has that potential. And that's his point as well. You just don't want to do it. And that's what resolutions are. It's just a little rewiring. And that's good. By my nature, I am unbelievably lazy. I'm super, super lazy. So last week I had off and uh, it was my wife and I and my three-month-old. We did nothing. Like nothing at all. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So super lazy. Now we have a three-month-old, so we took care of him and basically just stared at him for all day. So it kind of worked out. It, it kind of counted as something because we had someone to be responsible for. But if that was last year and there was no three month old, we would have done the same thing. Just sit on the couch all day. I'm so super lazy. And I'm like, when I get a bill, I'm just like, ah, whatever. And I put it on the counter in a pile. I am wired to be a piler. Right? I have piles of things, piles of papers, right? My mom and dad always did. They have piles everywhere, all over the house. There are piles of papers, magazines, newspapers, and in the offices, they would have, my dad worked at home. He would have piles of of folders on the ground, just piles. That's my wiring. I had to rewire that. So I don't have any piles anywhere, but except for when I get, I have one pile. I've narrowed down to one pile. So whenever I get a bill, I throw it there. And then a couple months later, I'll get the 30 day notice and a 60 day notice and a 90 day notice. I throw it there. Like that's horrible wiring, horrible, horrible wiring. I'm doing the best I can to fix that. And I have a bunch of terrible wiring. And I've been able to change a lot of it. Right, I'm up, up at 4.30 every morning, do show prep, work out at 6, eat breakfast, do a little more show prep, go to work, go home, show prep for the next day. Right, But like that's not in my nature. I'm lazy. But the reason people are like, it's, I think it's weird. I don't say the reason. I think it's weird that people laugh at uh, resolutions because everyone can get better. Um, me included, obviously. Like, not even close to where I want to be. And that should be true for everyone. Everyone should think that way. But I think it's this, it's like this weird, uh, you know, in our culture today, it's all like, oh, I'm born this way. Uh, it's just me being me. It's the real me, like that thing. It's it's the I'm proud of something that I shouldn't be proud of. I don't I don't get that. Like, if you're a procrastinator, which I am, instead of working to not be a procrastinator, you people go the other way and say, well, I'm proud of being a procrastinator and make jokes about it as if it's a good thing. So I don't, I don't get that. So I guess my point is here is your permission to make a resolution and keep it. You can keep it. You can do it. There's literally nothing keeping you from being in that 8% of people who keep a resolution all year. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. Nothing at all. 
you can do it. As Rob Schneider says, you can do it. So go do it. Why wouldn't you? Go ahead. <laughs> Start now. That's my pep talk. It's the best I can do. But just think, you're not wired. Well, you are wired a certain way, but you can rewire. There's the permission. You can rewire. One, But you're so close to being perfect. There's not much rewiring. But maybe one thing. Mike Slater's show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.